Welcome to Innovating Green, where we deep dive into the world of sustainability, forestry, and we explore the efforts of innovation to try to make a world a better place. I'm your host today, Romain Pison, and today we're delving into the hot topic of uh, environmental sector and conservation in general. Uh, specifically, I would like to talk about reforestation versus conservation and what is best for our planet. And to help us in this debate today, I'm very, very happy and honored to have Mike Davis, who is the CEO of the Social Carbon uh, Foundation and Standard as well. Um, but he's going to introduce himself. Hi, Mike, and welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, so yeah, Mike Davies, I'm the CEO of the Social Carbon Foundation, which manages the Social Carbon Standard. Uh, we're a voluntary carbon standard focusing on nature-based solutions. Originally created in Brazil back in 2005, um, where we supported over 60 projects. And then as of 2022, we made the decision to transition to a full carbon standard because previously we were just a co-benefit standard. So monitoring broader impacts of carbon projects alongside the likes of Gold Standard and, and Vera. So monitoring impacts of biodiversity, social impacts, kind of human health impacts. And since 2022, transition to a full standard focus on nature-based solutions, um, driving more holistic projects in the, in the industry. Fascinating. And I'm so happy we have you to discuss that today. Um, I would like to focus directly deep dive to the topic of nature-based solution and, and especially everything that's to do with, um, with forestry. So we know that conservation projects have a unique place in the environmental landscape, right? Um, at the same time, I hear a lot from colleagues, partners, clients, etc. Uh, sometimes skepticism around conservation. Can you explain what sets those projects apart in terms of their contribution to carbon reduction, um, especially, again, with our listeners who might believe that planting a tree, you know, the usual argument is planting a tree is more tangible and visible than conserving uh, an existing species or, or forest. Yes, yeah, so I think we can look at this in two different angles. One is, um, what are the key outcomes of those projects? And how do they contribute towards tackling climate change? So one of our biggest sources of emissions is deforestation. So conservation is primarily focusing on conserving what already remains. So you're avoiding emissions from preventing that deforestation from occurring. And in the carbon market, um, historically, that's been calculated by calculating the forecasted deforestation rate and looking at uh, the carbon stored in that forest and then calculating how much emissions would have been emitted if that deforestation had occurred and then calculating the avoided emissions. Aforestation reforestation is slightly different in that it's looking to restore or, or grow a forest that has previously been degraded. So you're actually removing carbon out of the atmosphere. So it's a removal based project type rather than an emission reduction project type. Okay. And you also went directly to the sort of thing that I would like to discuss, which is all the valuation and quantification, right, of those carbon credits from conservation efforts. We hear a lot of uh, studies, sometimes they've been debunked and there's controversy about the studies or the counter studies anyway around those quantifications. They sometimes pose a, a challenge, you know, just of methodology um, and from the baseline to the what if scenario that you mentioned to compare those pathways. So how can we ensure and how does social carbon ensure that those credits are accurately quantified and valued over time? Uh, yeah, can you elaborate a bit on that? I suppose let's look at um, 
the historical approach to uh, doing this quantification, uh, which is doing uh, red methodology. So red stands for reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation. Now, as I mentioned earlier, that was calculating what is the, the carbon stocks of that forest that exists, and then what is the deforestation threat and, and likely deforestation rate as a percentage. So, for example, if you had a plot of land which had um, was very dense of forests and it had a carbon stocks of, say, 200 tonnes of carbon per hectare, and you had a forecasted deforestation rate of, say, 2%, you can then calculate the potential emissions that would have occurred if that deforestation had taken place. The challenge with that is it's based on a lot of forecasts. So um, rather than doing direct measurements in terms of what actually did occur, because you're basing it on theoretical scenarios of what deforestation may have occurred, it's all very tied to your assumptions on how to calculate that deforestation risk and also how you measure the, the carbon stocks of that land to do the calculations. Uh, and some of the criticisms were that the deforestation rates were um, greater than other approaches that calculated, resulting in overestimation of, of the emission or avoided emissions that have occurred from those project types. Now, okay. where... Yeah, sorry, so, go ahead, please. So, so on, on the um, kind of approach we've taken, so we have a conservation methodology which is for areas of biodiversity importance. And the approach we've taken is slightly different in that um, we only support project areas that are vulnerable to deforestation and they are in an area of biodiversity importance classified by the IUCN. But we, we measure the, the carbon slightly differently. So RED historically was measuring emission um, avoidance, so forecasted deforestation rate right. loss. We focus on growth in carbon stocks. So most of these conservation zones are still not only net carbon sinks, they've, they've stored carbon, but they are growing very incrementally. So our approach is rather than using forecasts or estimates as to what deforestation would have been, rather let's focus on what is the growth in the carbon stocks of that forest which you're conserving, and then also measuring is there any deforestation in that to calculate if there's a net removal achieved by those projects. Oh. So. Our approach is more focused on doing real measurements rather than forecasts and measuring the changes in carbon stock of that forest. If it doesn't sequester carbon, you don't generate carbon credits. Likewise, if, if it does sequester carbon and there's been no deforestation, which has offset that, that's when you may be eligible to, to issue carbon under the methodology. Okay. I mean, we could almost stop there because you, you nailed it now. And I yeah, this is very clear. So we... What you're doing at Social Carol has nothing to do with what we've seen. Tell me if I'm wrong, yeah? but what we've seen of the evolution from Red Plus to jurisdictional Red Plus, it's it's a totally change of mindset in how you're going to measure. It has nothing to do with, or maybe you use some satellite or, or remote sensing, but it's not about forecasts and comparing trends and historical trends with a baseline and then what could happen. It's actually the real removal of carbon that is correlated with how much you increase in, in terms of carbon sink within that forest. Is that correct? Yeah. So I think um, to build on build on that further. So if we look at the jurisdictional and give some context as to what's happening on, on that side of red. So with the historical red, it was project focused. So you had a specific project to say 50,000 hectares. And what you'd do is you would typically select reference areas. So you'd select areas which are comparable to your project area and then use that to estimate what deforestation could have occurred. 
what the jurisdictional approach is taking is rather than looking at specific reference areas comparable to your project, it's looking at an entire jurisdiction. So it's measuring deforestation within that entire jurisdiction. And if uh, the, the standard that's being used supports it, you would then nest your project in. So say you had a whole state in Brazil, let's say um, state of uh, token chains, and you had a project within that state, you'd calculate what was the avoided deforestation compared to historical years for that year. And then you would include your, your area in that. And then you would have a contribution to that net avoided deforestation. So it's looking at a lot, much larger scale rather than what was occurring previously in one criticisms is that you could almost cherry pick the reference areas for your project to optimize and maximize the deforestation rate and claim more credits. Got it. Okay. And now, so my next question, okay, this we, we've covered the, all the red, that's very clear. How does that differ from the social carbon methodology? In particular, I would like to talk about SCM006. How, what are the methodology or the technologies you can use to make those measurements? Because now we're talking about a totally different approach to measure this increase in the carbon removal potentialities, well, actually the, the actual removal. Yeah, so there's uh, multiple approaches. So um, a project would need to be monitoring at a minimum two key areas. So one is the carbon or carbon stocks and the changes. And also if there's been any deforestation, which when you're doing that analysis, you'd be covering them both at the same time. So typically if you're measuring that deforestation, if there is any deforestation that occurs or degradation, you can measure that using satellite imagery. Um, and using the various publicly available tools to do so. In terms of measuring the growth in the carbon stocks, that's slightly different. So if it is a secondary forest, so it's fairly young in comparison, so it was degraded and it's regenerating, then there's an opportunity to use remote sensing such as satellite imagery to, to measure that change because it can sometimes be quite drastic, the, the growth in carbon stocks of doing so. If it's a primary forest, so it's relatively well-preserved, uh, and there hasn't been significant degradation in the past, that growth rate will be significantly smaller. So it might be less than one ton of carbon per hectare. And as a result, typically the best approach to measure that is by doing field measurements. So you have multiple sample plots on your project area, and then you're measuring almost every year the changes in carbon stock within that, that project area. So you're having direct measurement because it's such a small change that sometimes the, the, the remote sensing and satellite imagery just can't pick it up. Yeah. Um, on top of that as well, um, so if we go to the uh, extra requirements methodology has, so um, not only are you going to be measuring the, um, the deforestation rates that occur in that project area, ideally none, but there may be some on occasion, and, and the growth in carbon stocks. What makes social carbon really unique from other standards is that we mandate projects to be monitoring broader impacts of their projects. Um, so not just looking at carbon, but also monitoring the impacts of biodiversity, the impacts of the, the, the natural ecosystems, the social impacts of their projects, the human health impacts, and also the financial impacts. So they're more holistically designed. And we have a requirement for continuous improvement. So you will have at least 18 indicators to track all those different resources, oh. which was initially built around the sustainable livelihoods approach. And then all those projects need to be monitoring those indicators and demonstrating um, maintaining those levels or continuously improve them over time. So a project, for example, that might be sequestering a lot of carbon if it's an afforestation project, mm -hmm. but then it's having a, a detrimental impact on the local communities 
or on biodiversity, it won't be eligible to issue carbon under our standard because we have thresholds for what we think a high quality project needs to look like. And ultimately it comes back to resilience as well. The, the more you have the local community involved, you consider biodiversity in these more holistic viewpoints, the, the longer term results that project will deliver because it's being designed with the local environment in mind and, and the local stakeholders. Interesting. So we go way beyond just carbon. Um, does that mean, if I can push you, and I don't know if you have a bit of data on that or not, uh, does that mean still is because you go beyond and it involves more field monitoring and measurement, et cetera, <clears throat> that the cost of monitoring and making sure everything is done right would potentially be a bit higher than other projects that rely more on remote sensing? So I think um, by doing having all these extra requirements, there is going to be an inherent increase in um, resources needed to do that, that monitoring. Um, it really depends on, on how those indicators are going to be tracked. Some of them can be tracked using satellite imagery as well, but a lot of the time there would need to be some field measurements. Um, Again, if the project is already doing field measurements to verify the uh, incremental growth in carbon source of that forest, it can also be doing biodiversity surveys at the same time and other uh, monitoring to address some of the other indicators. But yes, th there is an inherent cost of doing so, um, but we think that cost is necessary. And also projects will typically get a premium price for their credits because um, they've demonstrated that broader impact beyond just the carbon piece. Of course, I understand, yeah. And we've seen definitely, I think recently and, and even more so currently, a shift towards the requirement to have a high integrity, you know, sort of credits and, and, and robustness. And I think there's a key demand, you know, and a split a bit. So I've seen at least, I don't know if you, if you concur, in the market between the less credible uh, credits that maybe also reflect the pricing uh, versus a demand for sort of credit that are very scarce on the market and but come with a price tag but i mean we don't do things uh, uh the right way without putting a certain level of effort and investment in there is that is that something you've seen as well in the sort of partners and and developers you you work with or you talk to uh, absolutely i think what we're seeing now is um by purchasing credits from projects that may not be going this extra mile there is a reputational risk um, and to organizations and and to avoid that they are now targeting those higher quality projects um, so there's definitely a drive towards that and ultimately in, in if you're doing a really good quality let's say afforestation project you're planting native species you're not doing a monoculture that will deliver a number of broader benefits beyond the carbon including biodiversity benefits but it is also inherently more expensive to do uh, and as a result there needs to be that premium price to justify that um, and, and what we're starting to see in the market is an increased appetite for those kind of projects. One, because they're more resilient, so they can, um, that they're non-permanence risk. So the risk of any carbon results being achieved, being undone in the future reduces. But also from a reputational standpoint, it looks far better to have supported a project like that than a monoculture or a project which it's questionable whether they're additional or not. Definitely, definitely, that makes sense. Thank you so much, Mike. If I could have a, a last word circling back to my initial question, what would be your sort of, uh, not final message, but an additional comment to some of our listeners that would ask you, 
where is the best, uh, 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 the most efficient way to invest today uh, of if I compare putting $1 or planting trees uh, somewhere versus following the social carbon approach uh, on those high uh, value of biodiversity area, what would be the sort of uh, help or guidance for decision making that you would like to, to share? Yes, good question. Um... The, the reality is we really need to preserve what remains. So um, a lot of these primary forests have such unique biodiversity and characteristics, you can't replicate them once they've gone. I think there was a, a recent study in the Atlantic Forest in Brazil, and in one hectare they found over 440 different tree species. Wow. And since, 20, no, since 1990, they've already found 30 plus new mammal species. So these areas are so important, so unique from a biodiversity standpoint. If we lose them, yes, you could try and do a really rich native species restoration, but it's never going to be an exact replica um, of, of that lost forest. Um, that being said, there is a real need to restore what's been lost and do these, these native restoration projects. Those will typically be more expensive because the, the cost of doing that planting, particularly if you're getting a rich species um, diversity is high, but it also delivers a huge benefit in that you're expanding that forest, you're creating new habitats for wildlife and so forth. But there is typically a higher cost per credit for that, just because the cost of, of doing that restoration, particularly in the early years is quite high. Uh, because of the labour needed, the, the the cost of purchasing seedlings and so forth. So if you were to compare the impact, they're both extremely important, both are needed in parallel. Um, the cost for conservation is typically going to be slightly lower just because you're, you're more focusing on um, activities to preserve and protect what's there rather than directly plant something in the ground, particularly in, in the uh, initial couple of years. But again, for both projects, they're going to be delivering so many... Um, broader benefits if designed properly beyond just the carbon uh, that they should be on on the top uh, list for both projects the key thing for them is just making sure as a buyer they understand how the carbon's being calculated and there is clear rationale behind the calculations and they can be replicated so that they feel comfortable in in the results being claimed makes sense Mike, your insights today have been incredibly enlightening thank you so much for sharing that with us my pleasure. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to Innovating Green. We hope that today's discussion has provided you with a deeper understanding of conservation, reforestation, and nature-based solution, and what the work of Social Carbon is doing uh, across our continent. Thank you so much. Thank you.